This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come to the very last chapter of the book of Matthew, we pray that you will really help us to end uh, the book of Matthew with uh, uh, real concentration, a desire to read and understand what it means so that it may apply deeply into our hearts and our minds. We pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Okay, I need your help this morning. Uh, I need you to help me with something. Now, uh, I want you to help me to tell me whether it's safe uh, to sit on this uh, blue chair. Okay, just, I'll just take this blue chair. So, uh, ooh, sorry. Okay, so you all see this blue chair here. Um, I want you to tell me, do you think it's uh, safe to sit on this blue chair? So obviously, you all in the front can't really help me, right? But for the people at the back uh, who are sitting on these blue chairs, is it safe for me to sit on this blue chair? And if I sat on it, would it take my weight? Yes. Okay, so, I'll sit on the blue chair. <coughs> oh, wow, okay, it works, right? Now, why did I do that? Why did I sit on the blue chair? I sat on the blue chair because basically I trusted in your testimony to me, right? That the blue chair was, okay, I see you sitting on the blue chair. You seem to be sitting fine. Many of you seem to be about the weight that I am, right? <clears throat> and I sat down and I'm okay. And I think that uh, that's what this passage is about, really. It's about faith, trust, and belief because of testimony, because of the testimony of what we read here in the Bible. Because I think that in the world that we live in, many people think that faith or belief is equivalent to blind faith and belief. You know, I just, I just believe in something that is unbelievable. I just trust in something and take a, <clears throat> so to speak, a leap of faith on something that uh, really I have no reasonable reason to believe in. But actually, as we read Matthew chapter 28 today, it actually says to us that faith is in testimony. Faith is in trust in what we really have logical, reasonable, and sensible uh, basis in order to trust and believe in something. Now, in Matthew chapter 27, which was uh, about uh, three weeks ago now, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we read uh, 2,000 years ago that Jesus, on Friday, the day, right, he was crucified, and between 12 to 3 o'clock, he hung on the cross, and he was dying. And we read that sometime after that, he died. His body was buried on Friday night, the night. Saturday, we read at the end of uh, chapter 27, <coughs> which you can see up here, that the Jewish authorities uh, put a guard around the tomb of Jesus, and they put a seal on the stone. So by Saturday nighttime, Jesus had been dead for about more than 24 hours, and no one had faith in Jesus. No one trusted in Jesus. No one believed in Jesus. If he had a Facebook uh, at that time, which he didn't, obviously, he would have had zero followers, right? He would have been unfollowed by everybody. He was dead, forgotten, gone. So Sunday morning, as we read here in Matthew chapter 28, we read here that two women 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And it says here in verse 2 that there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, as we look in this passage, there's many things to notice, right? Because even for me, uh, when I came to this passage, I realized that there were many things that I took for granted before. But there was an earthquake on Sunday morning. But it wasn't a, 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 you know, one of those natural earthquakes. It was actually a supernatural earthquake. Because if you look in the passage carefully, uh, if it's, which you see up here, this violent earthquake came about not because it was some uh, natural occurrence, because, you know, the, the plates shifted in the earth, but because for, or you can click now, an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven to the tomb and rolled back the stone. Now, for those of not, for, for us, uh, obviously all of us here who are not familiar with the burial practices in the ancient world, what happened was, when you had the tomb, the next slide, uh, usually the stone was like this circular wheel, right? And what happened is, there would be a trench or a groove uh, which was set on a, a bit of an incline so that uh, the, the, the stone or the, the round stone would roll itself in front of the tomb door. And uh, once you kind of like roll the, the stone in front of the tomb door, it's kind of like locked in place, right? Because, you know, they don't expect you to keep... It's not like a normal door where you keep going in and out, right? You know, once you, once you put the stone there... You kind of like it's there, right? So think of it in terms of like our our Velcro, you know, not Velcro, but our, our cable ties. You know those cable ties that you use. Sometimes you have these cable ties, and once you put the cable tie in, you're not meant to like take it in and out, right? Once you tie it, it's it's there. You're not meant to untie it unless you cut it, right? So what happened was the angel came and physically uh, moved the stone, and it resulted in this violent earthquake. But the second thing that you notice here, and, and this is why we really need to pay attention very closely to God's word, was that I had always thought that the angel came to move the stone from the tomb to let Jesus out. But that's not what it says, right? Because uh, the, the angel came and didn't roll back the stone and say, okay, Jesus, now you can now leave, right? Like, you know, Jesus, the door is open. Now, you know, you're no longer stuck, right? You know, you've been stuck here for 24 hours, but now I've helped you. The lift is uh, now fixed, right? You can, you can now depart, right? If you actually look at the, the passage, uh, the angel coming, rolled back the stone, he sat on it. And, 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 this, and in fact, as we read it, we presume that the tomb had already been vacated. Jesus had, had already left. So the reason why the angel came and rolled the stone back was not for Jesus. The reason why the angel came and caused this violent earthquake to move the stone away was for Mary and the other Mary. It was for the disciples that came later. It's for us, as we read it today, it's for us to realize that the tomb was empty. Because the tomb itself being empty is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So many years ago, in the 1930s, <clears throat> Excuse me, there was this English journalist called Frank Morrison who set out to write a book, 
right? Because you know he's a journalist. That's what they do. They write books. And he wanted to write a book uh, to prove that the story of Jesus and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a myth. Uh, but thankfully, he never completed that book, right? But the book that he actually completed was another book because as he kept investigating the resurrection of Jesus, he realized that that as a journalist, the question that kept plaguing him was, who moved the stone, right? Why was the tomb empty? Because as we've been looking through Matthew chapter 27, as we come to Matthew 28 today, we realize that, well, if the disciples moved the stone, then how did they get past the guards? How did they actually uh, then convince themselves that Jesus rose from the dead if they physically removed the dead body of Jesus? If the Jewish authorities had taken Jesus' body, then the question that we have to ask ourselves now is then, why did they then bother to keep Jesus' body? And the question is, because where did the body of Jesus go? How was the tomb empty? And how was the stone in front of the tomb moved? So Frank Morrison struggled with all these questions. And as he struggled with these questions, he realized that actually the truth must be that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why he ended up writing uh, this book, which is so, I guess, uh, popular today, because it comes to the heart of Matthew chapter 28, which is, who moved the stone, and why was the tomb empty? And it must be that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the good thing for us is, obviously, uh, that Matthew chapter 28 doesn't end at uh, verse 4, right? Because not this summer will be very short. And uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus would stop at the empty tomb. But it goes on, isn't it? It goes on because in verse 5, the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Now, I want you to notice the three things, the three important things that the angel tells the women. Uh, It's up here, the next slide. Three things, right? He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Now, these three things are very important, right? Because, you know, the empty tomb can have different interpretations, different options, different conclusions. Uh, Okay, wrong tomb. Early in the morning, you went to the wrong tomb, right? So, the wrong address. Or, body was stolen. Or, tomb body moved to another tomb. Who knows, right? But the angel is there to give very important testimony. And the testimony is to point us to the right conclusion. He is not here because Jesus has risen. And he's risen not because some supernatural occurrence just happened out of the blue. But he has risen just 
as he said that he would. Now, Jesus had said, uh, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, for those of us who've been following through last year, oh, this year, it's not last year yet, that's, that's uh, Tuesday. Um, many times, if you remember, Jesus kept telling the disciples he would die, and on the third day, be raised to life. Okay, so Matthew chapter 16, right, the very first time uh, Peter and the disciples recognized Jesus as the Christ, Jesus said that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. And Matthew chapter 17 said the same thing. Matthew chapter 20, he said the same thing. But obviously, nobody believed him because on Sunday morning, they all were going to the tomb and saying, okay man, this is it. Jesus said he's going to rise from the dead. Uh, let's get the party, party hats on, the cracker, you know, all the celebration because Jesus is going to rise today. Nobody was expecting him to rise from the dead, right? It's a bit like, okay, if I said to you, okay guys, when I die, I'm not really dead, guys. Three days later, I'm going to rise again and then we're going to catch uh, the new Spider-Man movie or something, right? I mean, you all be thinking, well, okay, Andrew, you know, he's not feeling very well. He's uh, you know, hallucinating or something, right? Because people don't do that, right? People don't die and rise again after three days. But that's why it's so important for us to hear the testimony of the angel, right? Because Jesus is not here, because he is risen, and he's not risen because it just suddenly happened, but because Jesus had said he would rise again from the dead. So here we have the testimony of the empty tomb, and now we have the testimony of the angel. But last of all, as we read in verse um, 8 onwards, we see that Jesus himself gives testimony about his resurrection. So in verse 8 it says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet. They worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now here we see that the two women, Mary and Mary Magdalene, they saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They held Jesus and they worshipped Jesus. So it must be Jesus, right? It wasn't some imposter, it wasn't somebody else, it was really Jesus. And I think that's what this passage is here for, is to show us that the women saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they held Jesus, they worshipped Jesus. It was Jesus risen from the dead. And this testimony is very important because it shows us that here, before their eyes, was Jesus Christ. It wasn't just the empty tomb. It wasn't just the angel. Jesus was there in the flesh in front of them. Now, in the world that we live in, there are two different types of evidence, right? So, uh, if I were to, say, drop my mobile phone from a safe distance, okay, I'll drop it. It's protected, so it's okay. So I'll drop it. Okay, if I keep dropping it over and over again, if I drop it a hundred times, what will happen? Will it, will it ever fly up into the sky? 
Or will it always go down? It will always go down. That's good. That's good. It will always go down, right? Okay? Because it proves the evidence of gravity. But there's another sort of evidence in this world, right? The evidence of history. Right? The evidence of history, the evidence by which we go to the court of law. Right? Some of you are studying law, some of you are lawyers here. You know, you can't recreate a crime scene. Right? You can't recreate, say, a World Cup goal being scored. Right? It just happens. Right? It's something that happens in history. But just because you can't recreate it doesn't mean it's not true. It's true, and we know it's true, because people give testimony to what they have seen. So it's the same thing here. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they touched Jesus, and they worshipped Jesus. It wasn't as if they said to themselves, okay, we're going to really concentrate really hard. Let's concentrate really hard. And let's really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then, miraculously, there's Jesus, right? No, they are witnesses to what the risen Jesus is really like. So if you think of uh, history, right, one of the most uh, traumatic moments in Singapore's history was, uh, say, the Japanese occupation of Singapore. Do you believe that the Japanese occupied Singapore? Yes, you do, right? Uh, Okay, so the Japanese occupied Singapore in 1942-45, but I was born in 1968. I I didn't see the Japanese occupy uh, Singapore. How do I know it's true? Well, my uh, grandmother told me when she was still alive about how uh, she traveled from Singapore to Ipoh and it took three days and she was pregnant with my mother at the time and uh, she was really hungry and uh, in the train, a very kind Japanese soldier gave her rice and so she lived and therefore my mother was born and therefore I'm here, right? So even though I was not there during the Japanese occupation, I believe that, that they were really here in Singapore. Why? Well, partly because my grandmother told me of how she lived during the Japanese occupation. So I believe that the Japanese are here, and I, I think it's true that the Japanese are here, because of the testimony of my grandmother. So in the same way, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of the testimony of the empty tomb, the testimony of the angel, and the testimony of the disciples and Mary who saw and heard and touched and worshipped Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe in the, whether the Japanese are here or not because it doesn't really matter, right? But the resurrection of Jesus is vitally important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually tells us that he is God and that he is Christ and that he is the Savior. Now, while all this was happening, (coughs) we were told in verse 11 here that while the true testimony of Jesus was going out, there was a false testimony that was actually being manufactured. So in verse 11 it says, while the women were on their way, Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, 
they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now I think as we look at this passage, there's meant to be a contrast between the guards' report and the women's testimony. Because at the end of uh, uh, verse 10, uh, they, Jesus tells the, the women to go and, and tell, give testimony to what they've seen, right? especially to the disciples. But here, the religious leaders tell the guards to give testimony about what they have not seen. And what makes it true worse is that the women are giving true testimony about the risen Jesus, but the guards are giving false testimony that Jesus' body was stolen. And on top of that, the women freely give testimony about what actually happened, while the guards were given a large sum of money to give false testimony about what didn't happen. But I think that actually as we look at this passage, we're not meant to look at it in isolation. We're meant to look at it within the context of the whole book of Matthew. And what's really sad here is because if we remember back to Matthew chapter 12, we look up here in the passage, uh, the religious leaders actually had come to Jesus and they had asked him for a miraculous sign and Jesus had said that he would not give them a sign except the sign of Jonah. That Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. So the Son of Man, Jesus, would be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. And he said, This is the sign that I'm going to give you that I am, right, from God, that I am the Christ. But the tragedy is, in verse 11 onwards, is that even though the religious leaders see this great sign of Jesus, the res- resurrection from the dead, instead of actually coming to faith in Jesus and believing. They actually try to suppress the news about Jesus. Now, why is that? Why is it the women come to faith? And why is it the religious leaders seek to suppress the news instead? I think the answer is found in what Jesus says in this passage, isn't it? He says that their problem is that they are a wicked and adulterous generation. In verse 39, oh, I didn't highlight it for you, but you can see it's up in verse 39, right? They are a wicked and adulterous generation. The problem is not in the evidence. The problem is in the audience. They're wicked in their hearts, and therefore they don't want to acknowledge Jesus as God. They're adulterous, because they are unfaithful to God. And therefore, Jesus actually says that as a result of their wickedness and their adultery, the people of the ancient world will stand up in condemnation and judgment over them. Because Jesus is greater than the prophet Jonah. Jesus is greater than the the great King Solomon. And yet... Here was one greater than Jonah. Here was one greater than King Solomon. 
but yet they refuse to repent and to worship Jesus. Now I think the sad thing is, as we look at this passage, there are many people in this world who are just like that. Instead of looking at the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, in their hearts they are wicked and they are adulterous because they are unfaithful to God. So I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, many, many decades ago, <clears throat> one of the books that I was given and I read uh, when I first became a Christian was this book called uh, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Right? Have you all heard of this book before? I'm sure many of you have seen this book before. If you go to SKS, it's always there, right? It's, it's just, this book is just always a bestseller. Right? And uh, as I was reading that book, I realized that actually the, 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 the evidence for faith in Jesus Christ, the testimony for faith in Jesus Christ, you know, was strong enough for me to become a Christian. And the sad thing for me is, after I became a Christian, when I, when I tried to talk to people about the evidence and the testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, many people rejected it out of hand. And they were not willing to actually even consider the evidence for Jesus and his resurrection. They just assumed that it wouldn't, wasn't true and they didn't even want to spend like five minutes on Jesus Christ. So I remember reading this book or coming across this book before which actually says, you know, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, right? And what people don't realize is uh, the atheist position actually requires faith and trust and belief as well. I need to have faith. I need to have faith that there is no God. To be an atheist, I have to have faith to believe that the whole world came about by chance. I have to be an atheist. I also have to have faith and belief and trust that uh, you know there's no such thing as a creator. But when you stack this up with the evidence of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, then to me, actually the weight of evidence to have faith in Jesus Christ and His resurrection, to have faith that there is a God and a Creator God, is stronger than the weight of evidence that there is no God and no Jesus. But it's only because of the wickedness and the adulterous generation of the world that we live in that seeks to not even look at the evidence and just assume that there is no Jesus and that there is no God, which leads people away from actually having faith in Jesus. Now we come now to the last part of the book of uh, <clears throat> Matthew. And it says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this is known as the uh, Great Commission. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm not sure whether in your phones you have a, a subtitle. It's called the Great Commission, right? It's actually like the last great commandment of Jesus to his disciples. And actually it's all linked, right? So it begins by saying, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, and I think this is a fulfillment of the responsive reading that we read a moment ago, right? In Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about how Jesus is like the Son of Man who has been given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So I think that as Jesus goes through the cross, He rises from the dead to receive all authority in heaven and on earth from God the Father. Now that He's received this everlasting dominion and eternal kingship, then it says, Therefore, right, therefore, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. <clears throat> now, this is really important. In fact, I, I could have just spent the sermon preaching on these four verses, right? The main verb or the main commandment the main action imperative is make disciples. Okay? That's, in, the, in the original language, that is the main thing we're supposed to focus on. Make disciples. Now this is very important, the idea of making disciples. right? To make a disciple is to basically become a follower. Make someone become a follower right, of Jesus. Uh, many, 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 many years ago, I remember coming to BDPC and uh, we had a guest speaker at uh, VDPC and he was preaching on Matthew chapter 28. And uh, he preached on uh, Matthew 28 and he ended uh, not in verse 16, right? Uh, oh, sorry, not in verse uh, 18. He, he, he ended in uh, verse 17. He said that the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we should uh, worship Jesus. And I remember mentioning to someone at the time, I said, how can you preach on Matthew 28 and not, and not actually go on to verse 18 to 20? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that our response is worship. But in Matthew chapter 28, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we must go and make disciples. That is the imperative, that is the action Commandment. Now, <clears throat> there are three subverbs, right? Which go with making disciples, which is go, baptize, and teach. Now, I think the idea of going is very important because going means getting out of your comfort zone and going out to people, going out to nations, going out to other people, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives in order to tell them about Jesus so that they will become disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Now this is a commandment of Jesus Christ. It is, it is because he has received all authority, therefore go and make disciples so that they will follow this King Jesus. 
Now, the question we have to ask ourselves really is a very stark one, right? The question is, next slide. How many disciples have you made in your lifetime? Okay, now this is not, okay, this is not some sort of quiz, right? Where I say, oh, you know, if you haven't made more than X number, you're not a real Christian, blah, 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 right? Uh, I give you a guilt trip or something. But, but if you look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 onwards. The question is, if you take Jesus' commandment seriously, if you take Jesus' kingship seriously, therefore go and make disciples, then if you're not even sharing the gospel with people, then are you taking the commandments of Jesus seriously? Because the irony is actually that Jesus tells his disciples to go and get them to teach people to obey everything I've commanded you. And, and one of the things that he's commanded them is to go and make disciples. Now, if you are not doing anything at all to make disciples for Jesus, then you have to really ask yourself, are you then obeying everything that Jesus has commanded you? Right? Because, you know, we, we take the commandments of Jesus quite seriously. Okay, okay, we, we, you know, do not lust, greed is bad, you know, do not murder. But making disciples is one of the commandments as well. And if we, if we, we do everything else, but we don't go and make disciples, then we're actually ignoring the very last great commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. So for all the rest of the things that we take seriously, if we ignore this, then we're actually not taking seriously what Jesus has commanded us at all. So this is a book that I read before. Uh, it's very helpful. It's called The Vine Project or The Trellis and the Vine. And um, he was saying that uh, part of the Christian walk is uh, this. Okay, this is a simplified version. Because uh, he's got this table. I thought, right, I'm very complicated. Okay, it's to actually believe as a Christian, yeah, you can believe in Jesus. You grow as a Christian. Then you make disciples. And then those disciples do the whole process over and over again, right? It's like a virtuous cycle. But he was saying, and I think rightly so, that many Christians get stuck on the first stage and second stage, right? We just grow as Christians or we believe in Jesus and we think, okay, that's it. We don't actually go and make disciples for Jesus Christ. But if you look at this passage, part of our problem is we just see Jesus as our Savior, right? We think, okay, Jesus, I believe in you, Jesus as our Savior. I remember when we went to Vietnam for a mission trip, <clears throat> some of the Vietnamese Christians were saying there that uh, one of the things that they found a bit disturbing in some of the Vietnamese churches was that when they have an altar call, right, uh, the friends will actually physically drag their friends to the front, right? So it doesn't matter whether you really believe, I'll just grab your arm and I'll bring you to the front and, you know, okay, that's, that's one person safe, right? But we, we, we often think that, okay, you know, as long as I, no, I, I believe in Jesus, I accept Jesus, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. But if you look at verse 18 again, I must, this one we really have to reflect on, right? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, 
Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus is not just calling us to recognize Jesus as Savior, but Jesus is calling us to recognize Jesus as King. All authority, all power, all dominion has been given to Jesus. Therefore, you need to make people disciples of Jesus. It's not enough that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus must be our Lord and our King to be obeyed. So therefore, as we look at this passage, we must take seriously this commandment, uh, this imperative to go and to share the gospel of people. I mean, obviously, uh, when I look back at my life, I can't think of that many people that I made as disciples of Jesus. But it's a, it's a corporate endeavor, right? I mean, I, I shared the gospel with someone, maybe many, many years later, I find out they became Christians. And I hope that that one thing I said in that one conversation all those years ago, in some way, maybe 1% contributed to them you know, becoming Christian. But unless we seek to, to, to incorporate that in our lives and to make disciples for Jesus, we're not actually being faithful to his great commandment. So I hope that as we come to the very end of Matthew chapter 28, uh, we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not end with us worshipping Jesus as God. But it's not just to worship, but it's to actually go and to make disciples for Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, I want to ask for your help again. Okay? So I want you to imagine now that there is this imaginary chair in front of me. Can you see this chair? Try very hard. It's a green color chair. Oh, no, no, it's green color. Okay, yellow color chair. It's a yellow color chair with uh, metal legs and a plastic frame. Okay. Do you think I can sit on that chair? No, right? You can't sit on the chair. Do you think if I believed really, really, really hard from the bottom of my heart, I could still sit in the chair? No, right? Because the chair doesn't exist, right? It's a figment of my imagination. I'm just describing it to you. It's not real. So in, a, in, in one way, it is not so much how hard I believe in something, right? how much trust I have in something, how much faith I have in someone, on something. What also counts is the object of my faith. Right? Unless the object of my faith is a real object, it is true and is able to bear my weight. It doesn't matter how hard I believe in it because it's not real. So in the same way, you know, we can try to put our faith in uh, objects which don't exist you know, because of our superstition. Or maybe we look very hard within ourselves and we try to find God or we go to some holy place to try to find God and we, and we, and we believe that, oh, God is there. I, I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it in the music or the candles or the incense. You know, I can feel God there and He must be there. But, but God is not really there, right? It's just, it's, just a, it's just a wish. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is in not, not in that category of faith or trust or belief. But rather, as we look at Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is real 
because of the testimony of the empty tomb, testimony of the angels, the testimony of the disciples, the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the testimony of the rise of Christianity after the resurrection of Jesus. And that's how we know that Jesus is real and he is risen from the dead. And his resurrection tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And what that means is that as we worship him as God, we must also be obedient to him. And what that means is that as far as we can use our gifts, our voices, our abilities, we must go and make disciples for Jesus in this world. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to see the reality of Jesus risen from the dead. That Matthew 28 speaks and testifies to us about how Jesus rose bodily. He spoke. Uh, He had physical form. He was touched. He uh, He was worshipped. And therefore, help us to be strong in our faith, dear Father, to know that uh, Jesus is not something that is just an imaginary person, a person of our own creation, but someone of history. And as a result, dear Father, because of his resurrection, one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than King Solomon is here. Indeed, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And we pray, dear Father, that uh, as we believe in Jesus, as we worship him, we will heed his last great commandment to go and make disciples for him among the people that we mix with. And we pray that uh, indeed we will not be stuck in our own comfort zones, but instead go out to share the good news of Jesus with people. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.